Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius. I am the host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I had the good fortune of speaking with Edmonton City Centre MLA, David Shepard. David was first elected in 2015 and recently re-elected in 2019. David is also currently the health critic for the Alberta NDP, a critically important role given everything that's happening in the world right now. David and I spoke about his journey and the winding road he's traveled to better understand and manage his own mental health. We also spoke about the current mental health care system, or as we both agreed to call it, the current non-system system, and the role government and public can collectively play to help design a system so it works for its users. And now I bring to you MLA, David Shepard. <laughs> David, uh, welcome to Confronting the Madness. I'm so happy you could join me today. Uh, how, how are you doing today? What's keeping you busy today? Uh, hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. What's keeping me busy today? Uh, getting ready for the estimates process. So when there's a new government budget, uh, then each minister sits down and takes questions on their aspect of the budget for a period. So I've got six hours uh, next week with the Minister of Health, sort of talk about his budget and business plan. So he's been doing a lot of prep this week, getting ready for that. Well, that, that's interesting in and of itself. And I want to I ask you about that later. But maybe for folks that don't know, you've kind of become a little bit of a, a local celebrity here. But maybe, maybe just tell the folks your role, uh, both as MLA, how long you've been in that role for, and what your current um, job is as Shadow Minister, because that's quite interesting in itself, especially given... Uh, the times we're living in. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, I was uh, elected as the MLA for Edmonton Centre back in uh, 2015, May 5th, 2015. So part of the orange wave, hadn't really been involved in politics much before, had been a member of the Alberta NDP for about six months. <laughs> so it was uh, it was something I'd been passionate about and I'd wanted to get into politics sometime in the future, but certainly hadn't expected it to be that soon. So it's been quite a, quite a ride. It's four years uh, sitting on the government side with uh, under Premier Rachel Notley and then re-elected in 2019 in April of 2019 as the MLA for Edmonton City Centre. And of course, then on the opposition side, and part of being in opposition is that you put up critics for each portfolio. So people that are going to sort of track the work of each minister, what's happening in that area of policy, and be able to respond on behalf of the opposition. So uh, I have the honour of serving as the opposition critic for health, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot, <laughs> yeah. but fascinating work to be part of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'd like to get back to that a little bit, but you know, one of the reasons, and you and I have talked before um, I started this podcast is to have some open and honest conversations around, you know, we, we can dive into the politics cause that's interesting, particularly where you sit. Um, but just your own lived experience mm. Um, with with it, your own mental health journey, um, 
maybe maybe just walk through that for us because one of the things that interests me about you in particular, if I think about your own personality, um, you know, you don't you don't strike me as someone who would have been chomping at the bit to get into politics. Um, and so maybe talk through, you know, your mental health journey and, and how you thought through your decision to enter into politics, because for somebody like me, who's thought that myself and have had my own struggles, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I could uh, withstand the battery of um, public scrutiny, I suppose, um, that you have to endure as a politician. So, yeah, my own journey with mental health. Well, you know, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a sort of very strict uh, fundamentalist evangelical Christian family and church environment and grew up in an environment, I guess, without a lot of support and encouragement, but with very strict rules and expectations. And at times, I guess, sort of a, a very emotionally uncertain environment, mm-hmm. you know, and it was so I developed uh, a lot of, let's say, idiosyncrasies, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of coping mechanisms that weren't mm-hmm. super healthy. You know, uh, a real fear of and devotion to authority, you know, mm-hmm. a real, you know, uh, drive to follow the rules. I was the I was that that was the way I coped with it. OK, mm-hmm. well, I will be as good a Christian kid as I can. And that will earn me favor and maybe, you know, and make sure that I'm not getting, you know, the, the negative. So that was kind of where I was. But I grew up with a lot of anxiety, severe mm-hmm. social anxiety, um, did fear not of, do well. Fear of of of, of authority, of, of failing the authorities that you were beholden to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, whether that be my father, whether that be my church, whether that be um, God, frankly, mm-hmm. right? You know, that stuff that was pretty heavily inculcated in me. And not having much structure for actually dealing with emotion. You know, when I brought mm-hmm. up emotional issues, you know, and tried to talk about them, you know, with my dad or with others, it was like, well, you know, that's that doesn't, that doesn't matter. You know, you're saved, right. you have faith. You know, emotions right. aren't to be trusted. So I, I grew up with no coping mechanism or even mm-hmm. understanding of any of that. So, you know, coming into high school, again, sort of that clinging really strictly to that belief and sort of for that, for my validation, my identity and for structure in my life, uh, came out of high school, went straight into Bible school. I was going to become a pastor. I loved music, but, you know, I was going to be a youth pastor. I was going to play in a cool Christian rock band. That was kind of the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went away to Bible school in Regina and it was just, I was in no way psychologically or emotionally equipped to be living on my own. I had mm-hmm. I had none of the skill set or infra- internal infrastructure, and so I fell apart. Essentially, kind of had a nervous breakdown. And again, there wasn't support there within that community. That strain of Christianity, particularly at that time, there was they didn't know how to deal with me. Mm-hmm. There was no help for me. They couldn't understand where I was coming from. But admittedly, you know, the, the issues I had were complex, but mm-hmm. I don't think so complex that you know any standard psychologist or therapist couldn't have helped. But anyway. Right. I didn't know how to ask for the help. They didn't know how to provide it. And so I found myself on the outside. And how did you internalize everything that was happening in your psyche at that time, given that presumably mental health was not a topical issue, even in the public forum at the time? Yeah. And so did you did you even think of the term mental health or how did you how did you internalize what was happening to you? 
I, I didn't know how to, you know. Uh, so at first it was, well, this is a crisis of faith. So you need to believe harder. You right. need to pray harder. You need right. to resolve your relationship with God. Then it was, you know, I came back to Edmonton. I got sent to see a psychologist who told me I was being oppressed by denom- demonic forces. And so he didn't get anywhere with that. So then he sent me to see a child psychiatrist, um, you know, or somebody who specialty was child psychiatry. And, you know, she, uh, I would have been 18, 19 years old. So it would have been around 91, 92. Uh, So, yeah. And then she kind of ran some tests and different things. Uh, and then wanted to put me on some medication. That was a big struggle, you know, in conversation, you know, and I was discouraged from doing that. But uh, eventually, did you, yeah, did I tried. Want, did you want to do it or you were discouraged by your family to do it? Are I was you... I was discouraged by the people around me from doing it. I didn't know. I was just lost, utterly emotionally lost and just confused and, you know, uh, it was dark. Mm-hmm. So eventually she did try me on a couple medications, found out later they were uh, medications for schizophrenia, had some uh-huh. nasty reactions. That was not wow. a fun experience. And so for a period of a couple of years after that, I would see her sporadically, you know, as I sort of spiraled and kind of felt like I needed help, tried a few different things and nothing really clicked in. And that mm-hmm. was kind of my life for years after that. It's, oh. I knew something was wrong and I knew my brain or my emotions or something was not working properly. And I just kind of kept struggling and trying to push through it. Did you struggle? And, did you struggle uh, without sharing this with anyone other than your family? Did you, were you ashamed or were you? I, you know, yeah, I I didn't know how to talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have the words for it. And when I tried to explain it to people, you know, people kind of brush me off. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm like looking, I, I'm just looking at all these things. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, am I obsessive compulsive? Uh, do I have depression? Do I have, mm-hmm. so I'm talking all these terms and people are like, no, you're, you're, you're fine. You know, you don't have the, you know, because you, right. you don't do this, you don't do this. And I was like, something is fundamentally wrong. And I did not know what. So it just ended up being sort of a spiraling cycle where I go to see my, I eventually went to see my family doctor in 97. Uh, and, you know, he was kind of like, well, you know, let's try you on these uh, sort of on, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was on like sort of a mild sedative kind of medication, right. like an Ativan type thing. Yeah. And that helped for a bit, but of course it was addictive. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it got to a point where I was having to take more and more of it. So went off it all together, still feeling that massive anxiety coming mm-hmm. back. It ended up on some uh, antidepressants and other mm-hmm. medications that sort of kept me going kind of until about 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. when I developed, uh, started developing some severe uh, gut problems and food intolerance mm-hmm. on top of mounting anxiety and other things after I'd gone off the, the antidepressants. And so again, sort of had another crash. Uh, and again, sort of going through this whole thing, you know, seeing, uh, was able to start seeing a psychiatrist over through the U of A mm-hmm. and eventually got uh, recommended into the uh, day treatment program at the university hospital, which is sort of a three and a half month uh, intensive group therapy program Mm -hmm. and went through that process. And it was incredibly difficult because again, trying to figure, I didn't know how to talk about, you know, all the mental and emotional stuff, then couple that with all of the physical stuff I was struggling with. And it was just really difficult to try to get a grasp on, Mm -hmm. but I made it through that program and 
you know, the stuff I learned there kind of carried with me in the years after. And in the years after, it was kind of a, it was a real struggle with the physical illness and the symptoms of that, Mm -hmm. which were incredibly challenging. And again, trying to explain to doctors what was going on when they can't figure it out in a chronic illness that couldn't be diagnosed. But went, uh, you know, in the years after, sort of began again to figure things out. I went back to school. I was working towards a new career, I figured out how to sort of manage my physical symptoms as best I could. And then, you know, went through a couple different rounds of just individual therapy where I just mm-hmm. recognized, okay, emotionally, I need some help to sort through some of these things. Mm-hmm. So that was probably starting around 2012, 2013 or so, as okay. I started to get employment that provided me with some coverage. Right. Some that was the biggest barrier before. I couldn't afford therapy. Right. Were you at the city so, of Edmonton at the time or? Uh, that was when I was working actually for the Canada Revenue Agency. Okay. So, you so I was working full time for there. So I had some basic benefits through them. Uh, and so, yeah. So I went through a few different rounds. went to Cornerstone here mm-hmm. uh, in my constituency because, yeah. of course, they had the sliding scale and the support right. there, which was helpful. And it, it was a process of starting to go back and understand some of the patterns of my life. A little mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. and delve into the some of the emotional side of things the psychological side of things and try to build some self-confidence that job i had with the cra was the first time i kind of worked in a really structured office environment yeah and you know found out it was work that i thrived in and you know yeah. i found out you, hey you, I, you needed that structure that structure was i did yeah. and, it, and it built self-confidence for right me, right yeah. you know i found something i was good at and that you know a job where i i could build some self-confidence i built a sort of a social circle there and some friends that were able to provide some structure and support and yeah i was kind of building a life and through that then I, I had kind of become interested in politics. So that was something I was kind of watching out of the corner of my eye. And, and what, what, what caught your eye, pol- politics originally? Why were you interested in it? You know, I think for a couple of reasons, you know, I always had a strong sense of social justice. I was a kid that got picked on a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I knew what it was to be an outsider. And I'd gone through that experience a number of times in my life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when I sort of found myself falling out of the church circles because they didn't know how to deal with me. And so I, that was always something that was in my mind, you know, how do we, you know, how do we fight for people that are left out? Right. And I was interested in communication and stuff, which is why I ended up doing a degree in it. And so I started watching the federal government under, you know, uh, Prime Minister Harper and how they operated didn't like the way they approach things and tried to sort of, you know, in a way crowd people out mm-hmm. because if less people are engaged, then it's easier to maintain control. Mm-hmm. And it was a really toxic kind of style of communication environment. And I, I was thinking a lot about, well, how do we make that system better? Mm-hmm. And then I was watching the provincial level uh, when uh, Premier Redford came in, that whole sort of process, and kind of watching, again, that lack of engagement because, again, people felt like they were left out. They were kept right. out. They had no way into the system. So they've mm-hmm. said there's no point in getting involved. So the same people get to keep control. And that resonated with me because that had mm-hmm. been my experience for so much of my right. life. And I wanted to, I said, you know what? I have a skill set. I'd learned that. I'm a, I'm a good communicator. I'm mm-hmm. good at organizing people and bringing them together to get work done. I'd done that with my condo board and a few other things, getting involved with some community advocacy. So I said, someday. I want to try to run for office and probably provincial level. I felt like that was a good match between, you know, uh, being able to work on significant policy stuff that had broad effect, but not so far off the ground that I felt like I would be ineffective as an individual. Right. Right. And, and okay. So 
2005 or 2015, um, there was an article that came out and you were public with um, your lived experience. I think it was with Councillor Scott McKean, who I just had on the podcast. Um, at the same time, I'm going to I'm going to pivot a little bit into some policy um, conversations and, and maybe broad, broadly around mental health care. But 2015, I think the, the auditor's report came out, um, which was rather unfriendly towards the state of affairs for mental health care at the time. And I think I have this written down. Um, systems to deliver mental health services should be improved. Department of Health has failed to execute its addiction mental health strategy. No need to redesign the department's um, strategy. They just need to carry it out. And this is about the time I got, you know, active in mental health and probably predates um, the NDP in power. But um, that was now six years ago. And I'm just wondering how you, how you think that mental health care has evolved both in your time in government and now as we're coming out of hopefully COVID-19, um, you know, wh- where do we sit from an Alberta um, provincial perspective with regards to mental health care? Good, bad, or? You know, I, I'd say things have improved. I, I definitely think we've made some progress. Uh, there's there's a, there's a real challenge in terms of improving the mental health care system, and it's twofold. One is one is uh, one is the system itself, and one is the public perception and the will mm-hmm. to make the investments in that system. Mm-hmm. So you know the system, like the Auditor General identified, was was not was was not adequate. Yes. Right, and that's because mental health care has kind of at least outside of uh, urgent care or crisis care mm-hmm. has been sort of just done off the side of a desk yes. for, for so long because that's where not, we prioritized it as a society. It's not even a system; it's been a series of programs and services try to be stitched together as a system, but it's absolutely not, not a system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's just a bunch of stuff that's been layered on top of each other to manage yes. crisis, yes. and it's you know. That's and that's been the problem. There hasn't been a nobody sat down and actually. How do we design a system that's going to deal with this issue properly? And the challenge, of course, is that the healthcare system in general has been a political football mm-hmm. for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And we saw those severe cuts in the 90s. And ever since, we've kind of been going on this cycle of up and down in terms of funding and focus, regardless, you know, of you know, we had so many different premiers and folks in power, different directions. So it's a system that hasn't been thought through and it's been underfunded in, and hasn't seen the investment need. The other side of that, of course, is public perception has come a long way. Of course, public perception in the early 90s, when I was first starting to really become aware of my own struggle, people didn't talk about this stuff. No. There was there was no Bell Let's Talk Day or, you know, or even yeah. just public conversation. So we have come a long way. And even from 2014, you know, 15 till now, everybody acknowledges the need for mental health supports and especially now in the midst of this pandemic so at least we've gotten that far but the problem is now the work that needs to be done to fix this sort of non-system system that we've got in place is monumentous and requires Mm -hmm. some significant investment in will and of course we need to have public support for any government to be able to move forward with that kind of work so We've come a lo- we've come a long ways, I think, in terms of awareness, but we've got a long ways to go in terms of the actual work to fix it. 
Yeah, and I think your point's well taken around. It's an interesting, I think, uh, I don't know if juxtaposition's the right word, but, you know, take Bell Let's Talk Day just because it's the most well-known, you know, public push to talk about mental health. You get hundreds of millions of impressions across the country about people talking about the importance of mental health and mental health care. Um, however, that to me, I don't see that translating. And, and, and that's just a microcosm of a myriad of other uh, public advocacy campaigns and pushes. And um, you see this with NHL hockey teams. You see this everywhere. Mental health has become one of the top three most topical issues for health foundations, for, for everyone. And so that says to me, the broader community in Alberta and Canada sees this as a pressing societal need. However, I don't ever see it translating into transformative change from a, a government investment public policy perspective. And, and granted, you know, the UCP has made some significant commitments of dollars, but it's, it's not only the money, it's the, it's the commitment to, to make financial investments, but also have a very well thought through strategy on how you're going to actually redesign a system. And so I think that's been the missing link all along. And so I don't know, you know, how we, you know, because $190 million or $140 million, it's really nibbling around the edges of a non-system system. You know, and kudos to the the UCP for the invest. Nothing against that, but, you know, everybody but governments and health systems are talking about transformation and system change. And I don't see how we can elevate the priority level of mental health any more than what we've been doing to date. Transformation and system change is incredibly hard. I mean, you, you, you were in charge of an organization, you know what it's like trying to, trying to manage, you know, uh, all of your existing systems, all the stuff that is in place, maintain momentum, continue to deliver the services and programs that you're in charge of, manage all of the people that are involved within that. And then to say, okay, now we're going to take all of that and turn it upside down. Mm-hmm. We're going to tear it down and we're going to rebuild that that's a really intense and difficult thing to do. And for mental health care, when that's embedded within the largest, most complex ministry of the entire government, and then within the larger mandate of an entire government, within a province that is undergoing massive disruption and change, (laughs) it's, it's, it's a huge and difficult ask. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's, yeah, but you're absolutely right. Dollars alone don't fix this. And you know, the, the comparison that comes to mind for me is, you know, the situation which is related that we are dealing with, say, here in Edmonton around the challenges of folks who are living houseless. And mm-hmm. that's that's an issue that's been around since the mid 90s. Yeah. Right. But, you know, same thing. There was no system built to deal with that. You had a bunch of organizations that popped up and said government isn't fixing this. We'd better. So they developed their own systems and programs and they were kind of all doing their own thing. And then eventually government came to the table and started putting money into it. But then it's a competitive bidding system. So you end up with duplication and just and eventually, you know, we are starting to get some traction because finally, you know, now in the last five or six years, we've seen a concerted effort 
by the city of Edmonton and others to build collaborative processes between organizations and people to say, and you're right, you had to come up with a clear vision. What is our goal? How do we all work together to accomplish this? And it's a similar thing, really, I guess, that probably has to happen at the provincial level and within the healthcare system. It's more complex, but you're right. It's having a real specific guided vision. What are the goals you want to accomplish? And part of that probably has to be how do we fold, you know, actual funding for people, everyday people to access mental health supports, therapy mm-hmm. in the same way that they access their family doctor with provincial public support. Yeah. And I mean, the NDP just recently, I, be, I believe, had been advocating, this was pre-budget, I suppose, for five um, free psychotherapy sessions for, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but every individual in Alberta. Yes. Is that, is that accurate? That's and right. Yeah. Maybe talk through the, the dialogue, if there are any between parties on on that, because, you know, one of the things I mean, the UK has been very active in um, adopting more universal care around psychotherapy and the evidence around psychotherapy is, is fairly robust around its efficacy. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but um, how, how did those conversations go or are they ongoing around any efforts to embed some more fulsome supports, particularly for those individuals that don't have uh, benefit providers um, yeah. I, I, would, I would think those are the ones that we should be targeting uh, first. Indeed. So, um, you know, there hasn't been uh, any indication from uh, from the current government that they're interested in, in pursuing this kind of a plan. But I think you're right. Psychotherapy and that kind of support is incredibly important. And the challenge that we have in the landscape right now for what's available, and indeed, you're right, the government has made some great investments in a number of healthcare, mental health care initiatives over the course of the pandemic, but they are all pretty much episodic. There's mm-hmm. a lot of investment in online resources. There's a lot of investment in telephone lines and those kinds of services. Yeah. And the challenge is, I think, for real effective support for people's mental health is you need to have continuity of care. It's just like if all I could do is call a random doctor every once in a while to check up on my physical health, that's not going to get me very far. So giving people, you know, guaranteed ability to at no cost to themselves have at least have that five sessions. That's that continuity of care. That allows you to actually dig into some issues, develop a plan of support, help teach some actual skills, have some follow-up. That's the sort of stuff that's actually impactful. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we'll see, I guess. So far, again, what we've seen from, from this government is uh, they've been investing on, on the one end more, but don't want to seem to create uh, additional public services supports. Right. And I, my understanding was there was there, there's to be a mental health plan produced or, or released. Um, you know, the, the big thing that I've seen from this current government has been primarily around um, addiction and, you know, the recovery model or the Alberta mm. model. And um, obviously there's been some political in uh, not infighting, but back and forth around harm reduction and so forth. Um, and, and putting that aside, you know, the, the one major area where I've seen absolutely zero conversations around is around youth mental health in this province, um, which I think has been neglected for, um, you know, decades, if not more. 
um, you know, the UCP or the, the NDP when, when you were in power had made a, a $226 million or $200 million investment into a new child and adolescent mental health pavilion um, that was since canceled by the current government, which this is not a, I'm not here to critique politics, mm. but I'm just going to, I'm just going to lay out the chronology of this. Um, and so that was a, that was a very significant longstanding facility that had been on the dockets for decades. And then it, it got canceled. Okay. It, that was an expensive build. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's been any number of further initiatives proposed around youth mental health. And I was involved with uh, one around integrated youth services, which is a model by which um, has been adopted across provinces and countries around the world. Um, I'm, I'm removed from that equation now, but my understanding is funding hasn't been made available there. Um, and, and we know that the healthcare system spends like 85 to 90% of their dollars on acute care. And, it, you know, providing upstream funding is always going to be the most difficult political sell. But how do you think through youth mental health, children's mental health, and, and how we can get more traction from the public there? Because you would think that out of anything, <laughs> and I, I want to talk about acute mental illness as well in Alberta Hospital, because I have a bone to pick there too. Why why is there not been more traction on the youth mental health file? You know, uh, I I appreciate what you said off the top there. You sort of talked about how we talk about addictions and mental health. That's always been a bit of a frustration for me because we, when we want to talk about mental health, we, and especially at least here politically, we always marry those things two together, which then means that we always end up talking about, like you say, crisis care. Right. People that have already gotten to the point where they're desperate, where they're in crisis and we have to have massive intervention. And when we're talking about mental health, there is a huge spectrum beyond the now it's essential, like you say, you know, that we have those acute and crisis care services. But with youth mental health. So much of that, you're right, could be that preventative. That means we keep people from ever getting to that crisis point. If I'd had, you know the rights had access to supports or some sort of intervention when I was much younger, how many years of my life could that have saved in terms of, you know, everything else that was lost? I mean, I ended up in a good place and I'm really happy where my life is, but all that to say, I think you're right. It's a concern that we continually have had governments that are focused on policy of, of the moment, politics of the moment, and rooted in almost a desperation, Mm -hmm. which means then we are constantly underfunding things that prevent the costs that come later on. And it's not only, you know, the loss of things like, yeah, the the uh, the, the facility that was going to be built by the Royal Alec Hospital or some of these other things, but it's, you know, the cuts to PUF funding and some of these other educational supports for kids in school. I mean, those are kids you intervene early. Mm-hmm. You help those kids out before they're even in school. Those first years in school, you make a massive 
difference mm. in their lives down the line. So you're right. It is a challenge for governments to make those investments yeah. or to convince the public, especially when we're in these kinds of economic crises. But it is the job of government, I think, to be leaders in shifting that conversation, you know, and helping the public understand the value of those investments. Yeah. Well, I think you're actually your story is a a perfect microcosm of how a more robust prevention early intervention strategy could have not only saved you from having years and years of of mental anguish, but you know if I look at you as a as a dollar sign to the health system, I would also probably argue that the day treatment that you took at the University of Alberta Hospital. Was was quite costly versus had that been um, had you had been able to address some of your uh, longstanding issues uh, historically earlier on, you would have been a great example of how I think there's a study in Australia that said the ROI the ROI on prevention early intervention is mm. four to four to one or six to one or something like that, and so I, yeah I I don't know I just see that. There's such an opportunity for us. Um, and then it also builds, you know, there's this intergenerational understanding of mental health that I think we don't talk about enough, wherein if you're able to uh, educate and provide resources to young people at an early age, and then they go on and have children, and, and they're much more versed in mental health, and they're able to provide uh, both, you know, parenting advice and guidance in a way that's rooted in evidence, but also if there are challenges, they understand the system a little bit better. So yeah, that's just a personal issue of mine, but I, I want to go back to something about the, and I, the stigma, the stigma story for me is okay. Yes. We need to reduce stigma. However, I, I've always had a problem with this, David, and that's, um, what's the point of reducing stigma? It's like, okay, so that we can talk about mental health more openly, maybe go get help. But if we don't have a system equipped to deal with the onslaught of reduced stigma individuals who are now willing to get help, it's setting people up sometimes, I think, for um, disappointment and failure. And and so I just wonder how you think about that. Um, obviously, Everybody would say stigma reduction is a, a noble, a noble endeavor. But without the system to support those that we're trying to encourage to get help, I sometimes worry that that maybe it's not all that it's meant to be. It's a fair observation. I, I will say this. You know, I think it's incredibly important that we continue to work to reduce stigma because there are some more supports available than there used to be, mm -hmm. right? You know, there are more family doctors who are literate and compassionate in this field, you know, and understanding and able to provide some very real tangible supports. There are more opportunities to access therapy in the community. There are more support groups and other things available. So I think reducing stigma is still essential so that people are able to start to access the services that are available and, you know, the, the medical treatments that are. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. said, you are absolutely correct. There is not enough 
in place yet. So uh, even the the many many family doctors who are who are empathic and understanding, compassionate, they have a limited suite of resources that mm-hmm. they can connect their patients to. Yeah. Uh, and for so. Yeah, you know, it's not enough just to talk about this. We need to be willing to take some, I think, much bolder steps in what we are willing to invest and what we are willing to implement. So things like, yeah, that policy we put forward, that's, I guess that's that's a big step. That's mm-hmm. opening the door for a significant shift in how we fund mental health services in our system. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of steps I think that we frankly have to be taking now if we truly want to follow through on what we're saying that mental health is every bit as important as physical health and essential, then we need to do that. But we got to remember too, it's not just those elements either. The years that I struggled, you know, part of it was because I was broke. I had severe financial constraints. Mm -hmm. That financial anxiety was massive Mm -hmm. as I was dealing with that physical ailment and dealing with my mental health struggles. Having more supports available to deal with that would have made that process a whole lot easier for me. So we got to recognize there are all these other social determinants that are involved in this conversation as well. Yes. So we need absolutely, I think, uh, the investment in mental health services and in the public system. But we also have to consider that holistically yes. Yes. in it's terms much, of what we much, provide. It's much broader than simply the the health service itself. I, I, I 100% agree. Um, I, I know, I know, I just want to be conscious of time, but I do mm-hmm. have a couple more questions, if it's okay. Um, so psychedelic medicine, psychedelic mm-hmm. compounds have, you know, reemerged from the 60s. Um, and there's this, you know, I, I'm sick of using the word renaissance, but um, there's been hundreds, if not, there's been hundreds of millions of dollars invested into from venture capitalists into business companies um, because the... The, the notion is that um, compounds like psilocybin, MDMA, LSD um, can affect the 5-2A serotonin receptor in your brain that, that allows for improved mental health. And I'm not going to get into the details and I'm going to pretend like I know the details, but I don't. So I'm not going to get into any more, more of the neuroscience. <laughs> I'll leave that for the experts. But I'm just wondering how as a, as a, as a policymaker – um, you, you're thinking through that, if at all, if that's reaching the, the, the conversation tables provincially, I know federally, obviously there's been a quite a strong push to not, not legalize, but provide some special access programs mm. so that individuals could access treatment. So just wondering how, how you've thought through that, if at all. Uh, you know, I haven't really been involved in any uh, real discussions on that on the provincial level. I mean, like you said, you know, um, you know, controlled substances, medications, drugs, uh, that's all handled by the federal government. And then once there's those approvals, then, you know, then the provincial governments can look at implementing those as part of their health care system. Uh, it sounds like there's still a fair amount of work and consideration that needs to go into it. I haven't read up on a lot of the research, but it's certainly a fascinating field of study. I know for myself, you know, it's my journey. It's it's a process of layers, right? Mm-hmm. You got to deal with this and then deal with the next thing. And then that unveils something else. And it's only been in the last you know couple of years that I've started digging into some of the deeper emotional stuff for me uh, with my family, with my father, some of these things. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand is some of these uh, some of these substances, you know, can provide. I don't know if shortcut is the right word, yes. but a more direct path to accessing 
the direct sort of emotional and psychological trauma and provide a way to to deal with that more directly and quickly. And that's that's fascinating to me. Um, I'm certainly interested to see more of how that research plays out and maybe if that could be incorporated in medical treatment. Yes. Yeah. I, th- I think that's for me, the key is um, shortcut might not be the best technical term, but let's, let's go with a direct path, maybe, or, 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 you know, but like, you know, say for example, it it takes you 16 um, psychological sessions to get to the root of your issue, Mm. you know, with, with substance enhanced psychotherapy, I think you're right that it it does provide a bit of a shortcut to get down to a deeper layer of what what is the fundamental trauma or issue that's been with you for uh years if not decades and so it's it's something that i you know as somebody who's looked at a lot of different modalities to try to help people that are struggling um the more that we can research and determine whether or not there's efficacy and evidence to um cost effectively deliver these to you know the the hundreds of millions of people that are struggling in this world um i i say let's let's really pursue that aggressively so um i find it i find it fascinating from a from that perspective but also just philosophically and you know um especially yeah. as covid's been such a toll on so many of our albertans and canadians and, and it, yeah it is fascinating i mean for myself i'm a very analytical guy i like to think through systems i like to map things out understand how everything connects to everything else and to a certain level at times when you're dealing with personal emotional trauma it's not about that it is about you just have to feel the feeling you yep. just have to and that that was revelatory for me i i hadn't encountered anything like that before so yeah this could be a really interesting way to help people access that so so last question because you've been the shadow health minister through covid which i think you'll probably look back on as being one of the most unique experiences of your life, I would imagine. How, how has that been for you psychologically for your own mental health? I mean, I would imagine there's been some, some highs in terms of advocating for things and your constituents in the community, but then a lot of, a lot of lows as well. And so maybe just talk, talk through that to kind of finish off our time. If you don't mind. This has been an incredible learning process for me. Frankly, my whole time as an MLA, because, you know, when I was elected in 2015, I was just in the process. You know, I was about a year into kind of actively working to rebuild my life. I'd done two years of working full-time and doing school full-time to get my Bachelor of Communications. Came out of that, and that sort of launched me into the new opportunities for career, new financial stability, new community relationships. And so for me, it was a process of sort of slowly expanding my world again after having very much contracted it. So coming in as an MLA, of course, then that explodes, right? All of a sudden, all these relationships, all these networks, all this opportunity, which was amazing on one hand, but incredibly daunting on another. Mm -hmm. So it was a great growth experience for me in terms of learning how to work with people and building my confidence, expanding my skill set. But it's work that will take everything you put into it and keep taking. Mm -hmm. Right. Nobody else is going to limit 
that for you. Right. You as an individual have to develop those boundaries and limits yourself. So coming in, you know, in my second term as opposition, yeah, there was a certain amount of stress and anxiety that came with finding myself now on the opposition bench. How do I figure out this landscape, my new relationship with my colleagues? And then, you know, like I said, I'm honored that that Rachel trusted me with this portfolio. Mm-hmm. And but Again, yeah, it's massive. <laughs> it is incredibly complex. So how do I build the relationships? How do I learn what's going on? How do I adapt to this landscape? And then, of course, yeah, having that be under a government that however you feel about their transformation mm-hmm. is making a very profound transformation of that system. Yeah. And then on top of that, a global pandemic. <laughs> it's, it, was, it, was, it was thrilling and exhilarating. Yeah. I will say that, yes. you know, there was an adrenaline rush that came with it that I that I frankly kind of loved in a sense. I, I like being out there on the bleeding edge. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, it was psychologically draining and exhausting, too. And I've had to really learn how to balance and prioritize and navigate that space. I will say, you know, there's been some, I I felt great about the relationships I had the chance to build with doctors over the last year. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt that was a fundamental injustice that was being done, regardless of how you feel about all the other aspects of it. You can acknowledge a problem, but you can still say that is not the right way to deal with it or to treat people. So having the opportunity, I think, to stand up for some folks and give them uh, some hope and inspiration. And I heard that back from a lot of folks in the midst of a very difficult period. That was an incredible opportunity. And that, mm-hmm. it felt really good to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I've had to learn a lot in the last year about my own limitations, looking after myself mm-hmm. and, you know, and much better time management, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had to reconsider a lot of the ways that I approach my work, the people that I work with. So it's, it's been a challenging period, but it's been a real opportunity for personal growth. Well, I'll just wrap up by saying um, a couple things. One, thank you for for sharing your, your lived experience so openly and honestly. Um, I don't think you can discount how important that is to, to people that might hear the story. So thank you for that. And also, as somebody who's uh, not political and probably a centrist, um, I think a lot of Albertans appreciate your um, decorum and uh, way way you treat other people across the aisle. While you can be um, forceful, it's not uh, personal. And so um, I commend you for, for that. And I think um, we need more of that in politics. So, so, so keep that up and um, keep taking care of yourselves. And I hope we can keep in touch um, and, and, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And it's, uh, you know, why I got into politics is kind of why I talk about mental health, too. I want to renew some of the stigma <laughs> and make it a space that people aren't afraid to go into and talk about. Because we, again, we we need more people engaged and part of all of these systems to make things better. So, no, I appreciate the, the work you've done on this and for the podcast. And thanks for having me. All right, my man. Take care of yourself and uh, we'll catch up soon.